Shabbat Shalom, everyone. We're going to get back to it today. And for the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been looking at the life of Balaam and kind of how Balaam has been interacting with the one God that reigns, the Most High God, the God of Israel. And one thing that is clear to me, and it comes from the testimony of the Torah itself, all right, is that Balaam had a radical, life-changing, listen to me carefully, a radical, life-changing experience with the God of Israel. Changed his life, changed his perspective. This is a guy that experienced all these uh, elements that we see wrapped in the grace message, where you talk about people confessing faith in the Messiah Yeshua. You talk about people changing their hearts, that if that doesn't please you, Lord, well, you know what? Then I will, I will turn back. I will go back. Talk about people getting the anointing of God, experiencing these types of things. All of those things, all of those beautiful elements of the gospel are on Balaam. And, 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 and hear me out here. Don't turn this into a fictitious experience a fake experience, as though uh, Balaam himself were to basically fabricate this emotion. You know, I, I think of atheists that when they think of it, they look at us and they think of us in our faith and they say, you know, your faith is just a crutch. You're weak-minded, so you need a little crutch to help cope with all the things that are in the world. Nothing could be farther from the truth when it comes to Balaam. This is real. His experience with the Lord, his heart for the Lord, him confessing the Lord, him saying, I'm not going to go beyond your word. That's real. And if you don't get that part, nothing else that we talk about today is even going to mean anything. You've got to understand, his experience with the Lord is as authentic as it gets. All right? However, unfortunately, as we continue today, Balaam's not going to hold it together. He's just not. And this is what makes this story so frightening. This especially, and this is what makes this story so relevant as I look at a church being ripped to shreds. It's given itself to compromise with each passing day more and more. And so this is a message, as I said before, this is a message that needs to be heard today. This is a message independently we need to hear and we need to allow this to sink deep down into our hearts and into our ears. And so we're going to continue on. And we left off at chapter 24. <clears throat> and basically what happened is it came to a crescendo. The story hit that tipping point with Balak was so upset. He's just done with Balaam. He called Balaam to curse Israel. And all he can do is bless him. Over and over and over again. So now you've blessed him these three times. You know, Balaam, I said I'd honor you, but I'm not going to. And Balaam responds. He's like, what did you think was going to happen? Honestly, I told you, you could give me your house filled with silver and gold. And guess what? I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord. And this is where we pick the story up. Because then Balaam, further in response to Balak, says, come with me. I'm going to show you what's going to happen to your people. This is what's going to happen. And Balaam lays one more prophecy on Balak. Now, if Balak wasn't mad enough and frustrated enough, oh, this is a doozy. 
Because now he gets into a prophecy that says, you know, a, a star is going to rise out of Jacob, a scepter out of Israel. And what is he going to do? This is a prophecy of the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to come and he's going to batter the brow of Moab. And so basically the word that Balaam leaves with Balak, after Balak just chews him out, was, you know what? Balak, you're as good as dead. The Messiah is going to rise and he himself is going to destroy you. Now, what do you think of that? I mean, you think that those are not usually the words we hear about Yeshua. Well, of course, I mean, once you get into Revelation, you get that. The wrath of the Lamb is coming. He's going to draw a sword. He's going to destroy people with the sword of his mouth. People are going to be cast into hell. Well, that prophecy that Balaam lays on it, man, does that extract that right out of it? Extremely powerful. Well, after he gets done with this prophecy, we're going to go to the last verse in the chapter. All right? And the last verse, it says this. So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. Please pay attention to this. Last verse in chapter 24. It's pretty unambiguous, right? I mean, it just basically says they're going to part ways. Balaam's going to go his way, and Balak's going to go his way. I mean, you could look at this and say, and if you're, this was your first time going through the Torah, right? I mean, you look at this and say, okay, this is pretty much the end of the story. There's going to be no further interchange. This is, this is done. However, the very next verse we read is this. Check this out. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove. Oh, and the people, meaning Israel, began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. What? Now hold on a second. Okay, so first things first. Who's the king of Moab? Balak. The, oh, yeah, that's the guy that has declared Israel his enemy. That's the guy that is out to destroy Israel. Now, like I said before, if it was my first time going through the Torah, and I just got done reading chapter 24, and they went and they parted their ways, Balaam said his peace, and this is the deal. Guess what I'm not thinking is going to happen? This, where Israel literally is basically, you're, you're dealing with like a 1407 B.C. Woodstock. I did not expect Israel to go and party and fornicate with them. Who expected that? This is insane. The world is flipped upside down. What is going on? And if that weren't bad enough, it, it goes on. They, meaning the Moabites, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. Oh, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So, so let me get this straight. Okay, so from chapter 24, the very end, they're just separating. The very next thing we read is Israel has given itself in harlotry to the women of Balak's kingdom. And now we're told that they are also worshiping the gods that Balak worships. What did I miss? I missed something between the end of chapter 24 and the first verse of 25. Because there's obviously a significant bit of information there. There has to be. You can't go from there to here. That's, I mean, it's just, you, you think of this. And so here's the beauty. We actually get what happened, that little significant piece of information, as we go to Numbers chapter 31. And so we're going to jump ahead. And we're going to try to fill the gap here. 
And the Lord spoke to Moshe, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. Now, this is the Lord basically declaring, Hey, because of what they did to you, because they allured you and seduced you, go kill them all. Take them out. This is the Lord giving the charge. And so we move to verse 8. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed. Evi, Rechem, and this is interesting, and I highlighted this just kind of as a side note. Zer, Her and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Now, the reason I highlighted Zer is because he's kind of a character of significance, especially in regard to what the Torah records. If you go back to Numbers chapter 25, you discover something. And keep in mind, when Israel joins themselves to the women of Moab, it is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Israelites that have done this. And so you got to think about that. If thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites went and fornicated with women, well, there's a lot of stories to be told. Only one is brought to the table. And the one that's brought to the table is Zimri. He's of the tribe of Simeon. And he grabs a Midianite woman, Cosby by name, presents her in front of Moses. This is no joke. You can go home and read it. Presents her in front of Moses and all the elders, takes her in a tent to fornicate with her. You want to talk about a brazen, unashamed ability to sin. Now, that ought to be a, a, a little flag for you. When you look out at what's going on in this country that does not know how to blush. The church, the church doesn't know how to blush. It lost its ability to blush. What can you expect to follow? Judgment. When you're at that point. Well, now I, I, I digress. But Cosby, this woman that, that Zimri grabbed to fornicate with in front of all the elders of Israel, this is her father. Her father is Zor. But then we get to this. And this is where we get to the meat of the matter. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. Has everything, everyone lost their mind. Because I was back in 24, everything seemed to be put in order. Israel's getting blessed. Israel's impenetrable. They're powerful. Okay, things look good. Balak is totally powerless. He can't do anything. The next thing I read is Israel's fornicating. They're bowing down to false gods. And now Balaam's getting killed. How does this make sense? This is a guy that was blessing Israel. And last time I checked in Genesis, when you bless Israel, you're blessed. This doesn't look like a blessing to me. Again, I ask, what happened? There's a lot of stuff going on here. What happened? Well, we continue. We're going to drop down to verse 15. And we read, And Moshe said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel... Through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord and the incident of Peor. Why is Balaam dead? Why did Israel kill him? Because he is the culprit. It all began with him. He went and counseled the Midianite women, the Moabites, that this is what you need to do. You need to go out and allure them and seduce them. And what is the payment of that? What did Israel expect? Well, this was it. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. 24,000 wiped out because of this event. Now, 
there's a lot of questions that need to be asked. And number one is, what in the world happened to you can't curse Israel? What, what, what happened to that? What happened that there's no witchcraft or divination against Israel? What happened to the Lord's promises that he has given to Israel? The untouchable has become touchable. The unbreachable has become breached. How is this possible? And this is something you want to pay attention to because it applies to every single one of us today. I want to begin by saying this. There is no witchcraft. There is no divination against Israel. Will not happen. Dark spirits, dark powers, they cannot override the protection, the promises, the faithfulness of God. Never happen. So what happened? Listen to this. The invitation. They didn't use witchcraft. They didn't use will. They didn't use might. They didn't use sword. They didn't use tank, spear, whatever. They didn't go to war against them. They invited them to come and fornicate. It was an invitation. And it wasn't until Israel yielded. They yielded to that invitation. That's when all hell broke loose. How demonic and frightening is that? God's promise holds fast. Now, keep in mind, the rest of Israel, let's be honest, untouchable. They didn't lose a hair. Why? They stayed faithful. They stayed under the grace of God. They stayed under the protection of God. But God has given us free will, and you can walk out of that free will. When you yield to all those little invitations that you're going to get from Hasatan, the devil's going to give you invitation after invitation, and he's got your number. That's the thing I despise so badly. And so many people that I pray with, he's got every one of your numbers because he knows your Achilles heel. He knows where you're weak. And where do you think he's going to hit you? He's going to hit you right in your weakest spot. And he's going to be inviting. He's going to, he's, some of these invitations, they come in different forms. Some of these invitations are going to come in the form of temptation. For a lot of men, it'll come in through the computer. It'll come in through pornography. He's inviting you, come. Come and feast. Come be with us. He's inviting you to go to a land of unforgiveness saying, no, you're justified. You don't have to forgive that person. He's going to invite you to the land of pride that refuses to humble yourself. You're going to get so many different types of invitations, and I'm telling you right now, it is on you. You accept that invitation, know this, you're one of the 24,000. You know, no, the grace will not cover you. The protection and the beauty and the promises God will not when you walk away from him. That is a biblical fact. You come out of the protection. That is not, it's not worth it. But this begs another question. I mean, you think about how all of this craziness is happening. What happened to Balaam? How, did this, how does this even come together, right? Why would Balaam do what he did? We just spent an entire chapter where he himself, I will not go beyond the word of the Lord, and I won't curse Israel. I won't get involved in any of that. I'm only going to bless them. And he himself saw that it pleased the Lord to bless them. What happened to him? Something happened between chapter 24 and chapter 25. And I'll tell you exactly what happened. The same 
tactic that the devil took against Israel, he first took against Balaam. That's what he did. He gave Balaam an invitation. Now, if you remember that invitation, we already know what it is. See, when Balaam came on the scene and offered him riches beyond his wildest imagination and offered them the glory of men, that was quite an offer. Some would say that's irresistible. And somewhere between 24 and 25, the enemy keeps playing that over and over again. This is what you had on the table. Oh, this is what you turned away from? You could have had it all. See, what we're seeing here is Balaam is not taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He's not casting down arguments in strongholds with the knowledge and the holiness and the faithfulness of God. This is what is happening to him. He is literally experiencing firsthand the flesh warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. How many of you can relate every single day you get up that you start wrestling the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh? How many times you, know, you talk about certain people that deal with addictions, whether it's alcohol addiction, whether it's drug addiction, whether it's sex addiction, all of these types of things, all they hear all day in their mind, they're, they're playing this through. If they're not drinking, they're dreaming about drinking. If they don't got a needle in their arm, they're only thinking about how can I get that next needle in my arm. Do you understand how this works in the attack on the heart and in the mind? The devil has your number. He's going to hit you every time where it hurts. And there is only one place of safety, and that is Yeshua. End of discussion. And this is where we need to be. See, what we're seeing here is Balaam didn't hold the line. The devil wore him out. In his relentless pursuit of him, he wore him out. And Balaam, like Israel, yielded. He yielded to something he should have never got involved in. Took his hands off the plow. I want to take you to 2 Peter. And the beauty of 2 Peter, this is our companion epistle, remember? Peter tells the same story. He's given the same message as Jude is giving. And we know Jude, he brings Korah to the table. He brings Cain to the table. And he brings Balaam to the table. Peter doesn't do that. Peter brings one name to the table. It is Balaam. And the guy gets very comprehensive in regard to his discourse on Balaam. I want to take you there and show you, give you a little support of what I'm telling you. And this is what we read in 2 Peter 2.15. They have forsaken the right way. I want to stop. They've forsaken. Okay, and you know, if you're ever given to Calvinism, you got to listen to these things. you got to listen to the story of Balaam. you got to listen... To forsake the right way means you had the right way and you were in the right way. You were at one time, you truly were walking in the right path. But Peter says they have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. And then he says this, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Agapao in the Greek for, you know, where you probably typically most of you heard agape. When Peter uses the word loved, I mean, that's the most intense aspect, this agape. Balaam had an agape for the wages of unrighteousness, for the, for the wages of unrighteous counsel. The wages got him. The riches 
of the world sucked him in, a guy that was anointed with the Ruach HaKodesh, a guy that confessed sin, a guy that confessed the one true God of Israel, and the devil got to him. What in the world is going on? He had given his heart. He started giving his heart over to the things of the world. So crazy to me. I mean, it's so messed up that this guy can have an authentic experience in the gospel and end up on this side of the tracks. The threat is real. I kid you not. I'll take you to Matthew 13. Yeshua talks about guys like Balaam and explains it so well in the parable of the sower. Talks about the sower going out and sowing seed by the wayside and by the stony ground. But then he gets to verse 22 and we read this. Now he who received seed, and I want to stop here because it's the word of God. You got to understand the parable. The, the, the parable of the sower, what he's sowing, he's sowing the word, he's sowing the gospel. This is what Balaam received. This is what many, many Christians receive. He who received among the thorns is he who hears the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. You understand this is exactly what happened to Balaam. He had a true authentic experience with the one true God. But he was in the thorns. And over time, those thorns, they begin to creep in and squeeze tighter and tighter. And you better believe the devil is there, knowing his weak spot, aiding this whole situation, trying to you know, wire Balaam in such a way and communicate to him that you can't walk away from that kind of riches. You, this, you need to do this. You, you could have such glory from men. Look at the stuff you're missing. You're missing out. It chokes to death. This is exactly what Peter's talking about when Peter says he loved the wages of unrighteousness. But then Peter goes on and he says this, but he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with the man's voice, restrained the madness of the what? Hanavi. The prophet. He calls him a prophet. Because what do prophets do? They prophesy. Was he prophesying on behalf of Baal? Or Hamosh? Or Molech? He prophesied on behalf of God. Even Peter recognizes this. And see, that's the thing, you know, with false prophets. I mean, you go through the Torah, you talk about the Torah, Torah talks about false prophets, you get into the prophets and prophet Jeremiah Jeremiah runs up against Hananiah, who is a prophet of God. He's a real prophet of God, but unfortunately, this real prophet jumps the tracks and starts false prophesying because he's prophesying out of the desires of his heart. See, Hananiah experienced something that the desires of the heart he elevated higher than the will of God. This is how this crazy stuff happens. It's crazy. Verse, moving on to verse 17. These are wells without water. Now, the imagery that Peter is using here is important because, you know, this whole concept, you know, the whole context is what? The whole context is the church in 2 Peter chapter 2. It's the church in the book of Jude. These are Christians. That's the context. It's people who turn the grace of God into lewdness. What does Peter use for imagery to describe these kinds of people? 
Wells without water. Why do people go to wells? For life, right? You're walking out. This meant so much more in the first century than it does today. But you're out, you're on your journey. You are going from well to well to well. That's what you're looking for. Because you cannot survive without water. And he uses us as descriptors of we are to be wells. You know, Yeshua says, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Mayim Chaim is to come out of you because Yeshua is in you. And that means you're to give life to other people through Yeshua. This is the concept. Well, these Christians are wells, but they have no life. They have no water. They have no sustenance. They have no fruit. And then he goes on, he says, their clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness and darkness forever. Verse 19, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. They They go out and say, Christ has set us free. Christ has made us all free. Yet they themselves, the very people that are preaching this, they're sinning. They're abandoning the word of God. They're not listening to his commandments. For by whom a person is overcome by him, also he is brought into bondage. Verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world. Now again, just to beat this down with good measure. We're talking about someone that had escaped the pollutions. They had the gospel. They were, had an authentic experience with Christ. There's no debate. Escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Messiah, Yeshua. Oh, but then he says this. They are again entangled in them and overcome. And the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. You understand? We're talking about authentic Christians jumping the tracks like Balaam. Which keep in mind, as Peter's saying this, what is the one name he has in view? Balaam. It makes perfect sense when you actually study the story. Verse 21. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, oh, and to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. What is happening with these Christians that were wells once with water, filled with water, And now the water's gone. They stop listening to God. They stop spending time with him. They stop praying. They stop obeying him. And they become more like the world. They start following the dictates of their own heart. They start following the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. See, because the devil has told them, you will surely not die. You will not die. It's okay. You can dabble in here. Everyone's doing it. No, you will die. I mean, the Bible is certain. You cannot rebel against God. You cannot abandon him. It will be the end for you. Then he says in verse 22, But it happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to wallowing in the mire. Understand something. Balaam, he returned and began to drink his own vomit. This is what Balaam did. This is why his story is so relevant for us today. This is why it's relevant for a church that's coming unglued. That is becoming a well with no water. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, which we're in, some will depart from the faith. They were in the faith. Their faith was authentic in Christ. And now they're gone. They've abandoned ship. 
they'll depart from the faith. And then we told why. Because they're going to give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Demons who are going out peddling this nonsense that you can live like hell and inherit heaven. The demons are gathering Christians right now to come and drink their vomit. That is what is happening right now. To acquiesce to the desires of the world. God wants whatever your heart's desire is. This is what the church is being told. Whatever your desire is, God's okay with it. We, how about we ask God? When, what happened to that? How about we ask God if God's okay with it? No, no. No, don't confuse people with the facts. Don't do that. Paul goes on. He says, speaking lies and hypocrisy. What kind of lies? The kind of lies that tells you, you know what? I don't need to do what's in this book. I don't need to keep the Torah. I don't need to keep the commandments. Lies like the law is oppressive. Christ did away with that. They speak lies and hypocrisy. And then he goes on, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. How does that happen? How does, that ha- how does your conscience get seared with a hot iron? It's when you come to a point where you will not receive the correction of the Lord. You will not hear this word. You don't want anything to do with it. In fact, you know, I think of Proverbs 12. It says, he who hates correction, and I love the New King James, best version ever on this. He who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> You're dumb. It's true. When I, if I'm a man that's not going to receive correction according to Scripture, and the Proverbs filled with this, right? You're dumb. I don't want to be dumb. I don't. I don't want to be stupid. But this is what happens. It's, it's when they will no longer hear his law. They will no longer hear his words. They stop up their ears. They're done. Hebrews 10.38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And, and, you know, the way this is worded is almost disarming. That, you know, the Lord has no pleasure in him. It's almost like, well, you know, if you do that, well, I'm not really happy with you, but it's all good. No, this is, if you don't do what I say, I will literally come and kill you. I will kill her children with death. You will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. You know, so, so when I look at this, when he says, you know, my soul will not have pleasure in him, understand the gravity of that statement. Of drawing back like Balaam. Balaam who drew back to the old sins. Is, is there anyone here? I suspect not. But is there anyone here where the devil has not tried to bring you back to your vomit? Is this not what he does? This is the MO. Your flesh is inclined to go back and drink your own vomit. To partake in your sin. How do you combat that? Giving your heart to the Lord, getting strong, praying, fasting, and saying no. And replacing those desires by turning to Yeshua, calling on his name, immersing yourself in his word, putting people around you to hold you accountable. Putting people around you that are going to speak life into you. You know, the the, the computer isn't going to give you life. This is where a lot of guys get themselves in trouble. Going to pornography, there's no life in that. 
I'm going to put up some names here. And I, I have others that I could put up. I just grabbed ones I was thinking of. You know, all these men have something in common across the board. They all did something. It's all the same. They all walked away. They all jumped the tracks. You think of Korah. You think of Cain. You think of Esau. Esau was given the birthright, the great blessing, and he sold it for a bowl of stew. His salvation, what God had given him, meant nothing to him. Meant nothing. See, every one of these guys on this board had a real experience with the living God. A real experience, communication with God. Saul? Are you kidding me? Saul was made king of Israel, anointed with the Holy Spirit. This guy prophesied. God carried out great exploits as Saul was king. Absolutely amazing. Saul knew the Lord. Demas, in the New Testament, a companion of Paul, did ministry side by side. Can you imagine? One of the most famous evangelists that have ever existed in the world is the Apostle Paul. Demas was with him. Is that impressive? Yes. To be a part of Apostle Paul's uh, circle in ministry, that impresses me. Demas was right there. And you know what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy? He has to break the news to him. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Isn't that interesting? The very same issue Balaam has. Balaam gave his heart to the things of the world, which the things that are highly esteemed among men are abomination to God, says Yeshua in Luke 16. But Demas walked away. All the miracles that he would have saw through the apostle Paul. I mean, that guy raised the dead. He had handkerchiefs being taken away from him. And demons are flying out of people. Demas jumped ship. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, or Elisha the prophet. Think about what he just got done seeing. He just saw Naaman, a Syrian, or Naaman. What happened to Naaman? He was healed of leprosy. He sees the power of God. He just sees a leper, totally cleansed. He is in the kingdom of God. I mean, Gehazi is seeing this. He travels with a man with the double anointing of Elijah. Think about what he experienced and what he saw. And the moment Naaman is healed, he starts scheming how to make money and profit off of God healing him. Wages of unrighteousness. He's thinking about the things of the world, not the power of God. That blows my mind. That scares me to death. You can have people exposed to such power, to such glory, the glory of God, and they walk away. How does this happen? You got Balaam, you got Judas, Iscariot. Judas himself went out doing miracles. Judas himself went out casting out demons. We know this. It's a biblical fact. He is part of the greatest ministry that has ever existed. He was one of the 12 apostles. And what did Judas do? He betrayed his master for 30 pieces of silver for wages of unrighteousness. Wages of unrighteousness. He wanted the money. And you saw how short-lived that was, going and hanging himself. And, 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 and Judas is a betrayer. You think about this. Judas is one of those characters that has put the fear of God into me so mightily because the reality, when we go out and sin, what are we doing? 
we're betraying Yeshua. And the devil doesn't want you to have that perspective. He doesn't want to see you're, you're being a traitor. You're being a Judas. Oh, but then you get to come to church. And you say, Shalom, Rabbi. And betray him with a kiss as you lift your hands up. And you sing the songs. And then you go home and sin. That, I don't even know how to even follow up on that. On how demonic it is. How delusional this whole generation has become. Filled with sin. There's something else here that I want to point out with all these guys. It's something that every single one of these guys lacked. And it's a common denominator, and it's something we need to pay attention to here. Not one of these guys had perseverance. Not one. Not one did what Yeshua said we had to do. In Matthew 10, 22, he says, You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures until the end will be saved. Do you understand? Salvation hinges upon your endurance. Now, we don't like that because that means, you know what? We got to take this seriously. I'm going to have to be a living sacrifice. I'm going to have to do this. Only those who endure to the end will be saved. Perseverance. Perseverance is going to plow through tribulation. Perseverance is going to plow through the trials. Perseverance plows through the pain. It plows through discouragement. It plows through despair. It plows through fear. And it says no to all the invitations of temptation. That's endurance. That's perseverance. And when the world hits you hardest and you lose everything, more than you could have imagined, like Job, and you're wallowing and you're suffering physically in the flesh, then you come out and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Endurance. This is endurance. This is who we need to be in this generation because we will not make it through this generation without endurance. Paul says this, don't grow weary while doing good. That means walking in righteousness, walking in holiness. For in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. And Yeshua says pray. In Luke 18 he says pray and don't lose heart. Why, did, why are we being told don't lose heart? Because there's a threat. You're going to lose heart. And David says I would have lost heart. In Psalm 27, I would have lost heart unless I had believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Unless I had that faith. See, perseverance is one of the barometers of your faith. If you're not persevering through the things that you're going through, you've got nothing. You have no faith. Let me offer a little motivation. I want to take you back to the passage that really kind of started all of this and talking about these men who have turned the grace of God into lewdness and what they need to be warned of and what they need to hear. We're going to go back to Matthew 7. We're going to look at this through the lens of Balaam. It's fascinating. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you know, I, as I go through this, I always mention, number one, you have to understand these are professing Christians. They know him. They're calling him by name. 
And one of the most troubling verses, I would, I would argue this is the scariest verse in all the Bible. Yeshua just got done saying, not everyone who confesses me is going to make it. How am I supposed to process that? How are you supposed to process? He is saying, not everyone who confesses me is going to get in. Well, what does he mean? Well, he goes on and tells us, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. You've got to, it's, you know, we've got to obey God. We've got to obey his commandments. When, when the young rich man comes to him, Matthew 19, what, Yeshua, what do I do to inherit the eternal life? I want eternal life. Yeshua's response, keep the commandments. The very response you're not going to hear today, the very response that nobody wants to hear in the church. We just don't want to do it. And Yeshua sends this warning, you better hear it. Not everyone who confesses me is going to get in. Then he moves on to verse 22. Many, I wish it was some, I wish it would just would even say remnant or a tiny bit. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, they're confessing him. Oh, have we not prophesied in your name? Oh, guess what? Saul prophesied, guess what? Balaam prophesied. He had the anointing of the living God. And let me, just to put things into context, one of the most powerful messianic prophecies to this day was through Balaam. Right in chapter 24, one of the most awesome messianic prophecies of Yeshua. Isn't this mind-blowing? He says, many will say to me that they're, they're going to confess him. They've prophesied in his name. They've cast out demons in his name. And they've done many wonders in his name. Yeah, Judas, what did Judas do? Oh, yeah, he cast out demons. That's what Judas, being a part of the ministry, no question. He did many wonders as he's going about in the ministry of Yeshua. There's going to be a lot of Christians at the end that are going to be really surprised. Because Yeshua is going to say, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And just to bring a little clarity to the table, you know, there are some teachers that try to come out and say, well, you know, the fact that he said, I never knew them, they were never saved. They never had an authentic experience with the gospel. You know, the Calvinists love to interpret this passage this way. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The only way to understand this is through interpreting Scripture with Scripture. In other words, let me show you what I mean in a moment. But for now, let's just finish this out. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The thing that's going to keep people out of the kingdom is walking away from the Torah. Walking away from the commandments of God. That's what's going to keep them out of the kingdom of God. That horrifies me. Especially in light of the fact that, you know, you have churches today. What are they doing? They're promoting abortion. You can't make this stuff up. Literally, pastors promoting abortion. We have pastors promoting the LGBTQ lifestyle. An alternative lifestyle. Lifestyles that are condemned in scripture. Lifestyles that they have no place in church. The church is the place to tell them the truth, to love them, to be patient with them, to show them kindness, and to bring them into the kingdom of God according to his word. That's what the church is for. But now it's a sounding board for exactly what the world is resounding. What the world is sounding out. The church is doing the exact same thing. The church has become a place of hedonism. I mean, all you need to do is look at 
you know, the seeker-sensitive movement. All you need to do is look at the, the Word of Faith movement. Now, certainly, there's good Christians in all of these, and, but, uh, you know, you got guys flying around in $20 million jets. This is nuts. This is crazy. This stuff does not belong in the church. And you know what? At the end, is it going to be worth it? Ask Gehazi, was it worth it? Ask Judas, was it worth it? Ask Balaam, was it worth it? It's not worth it. You know, I, I, I look at the, I, I'm, so, I'm so struggling now more than I've ever struggled before with the church. Because things are starting to come unglued in this world, amen? And I'm seeing people waver and falter beyond what I even thought. I thought I, you know, had a really good perspective. I understated the problem. They are not taking seriously the word of God. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And most Christians, and there's, there's a report I actually just read last week, talking how biblically illiterate Christians really are. And some of the things that they actually believe is astounding. Where they, they don't believe that people should be getting their morality from the Bible. Are you, what? How does that even work? Well, let me take you to Ezekiel. And I want to get into this concept of what Yeshua just shared with us in Matthew. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. Another mind-blowing moment here for me. That Ezekiel is raised up as a watchman. The Holy Spirit anointed. He prophesied. And guess what? The guy is still speaking today. Through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The warning stands. And what is this warning? Well, we go here to verse 13. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity. They're righteous. I have the gospel. I'm in tune with the Lord. We're in relationship. But when I get comfortable with the Lord that, you know what, I can sin. I'm all good because I'm under grace. And I get comfortable with sin and I acquiesce to the things of the world. Well, then we're told this. None of his righteous works shall be remembered. I want to stop there. Everything he did for the Lord, the prophesying, the casting out demons, doing many wonders in his name, all of it's forgotten. That's why Yeshua comes out and says, I never knew you. No, re no recollection. See, that, that's what happens. Whoever sins against him, Exodus 32, God will blot him out of his book. You were in the book, but you got blotted out. See, if you're not in the book, he never knew you. You, you understand what's being communicated? But because of the iniquity that he has committed, he will die. Period. Now as we continue, we're going to end here because the Lord offers hope. This is where I land on this hope. As we go to verse 14, again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And I want to stop there. That means the adulterers, all the fornicators. That means you're talking about women who have been, uh, who have been giving their babies up in abortions. I mean, atrocious types of sins, murderers, the covetous, the idolatrous, the ones who are worshiping Satan. Think about all these kinds of sinners and then think about this. 
If he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. That's hope. I don't care if you're a Satanist and if you're a woman that had committed three, four, five, six abortions, if you're involved in the LGBT community, you've been living a gay lifestyle for 30 years, guess what? You need to meet the power of the blood, the blood of Yeshua. You call on his name, that pain, that hurt, that suffering, that regret, Yeshua will meet you. He will cover you. You have hope. This is the gospel. The gospel is the hope. That all the things that we've done, and none of us are better than anyone else because we've all fallen short. The true gospel is the love of Yeshua, that he will cover your sins, and you don't have to be bound by them. And you don't have to be bound by the enemy. You can be set free. That's true liberty. And then you walk in that liberty and the freedom of his word. Are we good? Amen. Let's close in prayer.